This is Shine On, the Health and Happiness Show, and Ella's Leash Production. Heard as a podcast around the world, but heard first on radio stations 100.7 WHUD-FM and 920-1260 and 1420-AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Shine On, bringing you healers and dreamers and people who want to make life richer. It's your time to shine on. Hi, it's Casey. Thank you for tuning in to Shine On today. The purpose of this show today is to have us each take a look at our factory settings. Our guest, Guru Nishan, compares the human experience to a computer. We came up in the world with some beliefs in us that weren't probably naturally ours. They were given to us by our environment. So recently, I read about Glenn Close in uh, People magazine. She was on Prince Harry and Oprah's new docuseries, The Me You Don't See. And Glenn says she is psychologically traumatized since age seven because of the religious cult that she grew up in. And because of that, she's still not able to have lasting relationships. Our guest today, Guru Nishan, lives in Chicago, and she grew up in the cult of Kundalini. I didn't know that existed. So I'm learning a lot today as we all sort of take a look back and look at those settings that we may have in our lives that perhaps caused a little trauma and no longer serve us. We'll start here. Guru Nishan, what does your name mean? Guru Nishan basically means like flag of the guru or symbol of the transformation of darkness to light. Well, that is an awful lot to put on a small baby child. You know, (laughs) my parents actually didn't name me. My parents' spiritual teacher at the time named us. That was just standard protocol in the community that I was born into. Can we talk about this Kundalini community? I've only taken a few Kundalini courses. Like it calls to me something about the, I don't know what, the holding the poses or the chanting or the gonging. But again, I've only done it a handful of times. You grew up in what you call a high demand religious community. Yes. The limited Kundalini I know and high demand religious community, I wouldn't have put them in the same sentence. So I wanna hear how that was, where that was, and... Well, my parents joined back in like 1969, and it was like hippie kind of morphed into spiritual yoga religious community with the foundation being kundalini yoga and meditation. And their spiritual teacher was Yogi Bhajan, who I now refer to as YB the Predator. Over the last 50 years, there has been a real underbelly and shadow of the kundalini yoga community has been exposed. And so most of my life, my narrative was that I was raised in a spiritual community. And yes, it had some religious dogma and hypocrisy. And so I shed that, kept the health consciousness, the parts that I liked about the yoga and wellness. And that's what I thought was real and kind of my path in the world. And my body had a whole nother message to teach me. And I didn't realize the amount of trauma and complex PTSD that my body was holding and trying to communicate to me that was directly linked back to systemic abusive patterns from the Kundalini Yoga community that weren't just present then, but are very much present in the community in 3HO today. Okay, here's what I know about Yogi Bhajan. Yogi, is that how you say it? Yes. I have played that song at women's retreats, longtime son. And I tell the story of how he came to New York, I guess from India, and he got into a cab and he heard that song on, on the radio by the, the something string band. 
I forget yeah. what it was, right? Something string band. And he adopted that chorus, May the Long Time Sun Shine Upon You, as his uh, theme song. And now it's played in a lot of places. And I always thought he was a good guy. Me too. I knew he wasn't, quote, a good guy. I knew he was a religious leader that had plenty of hypocrisy. And I just kind of put it into the category of kind of most religious orders that you know, have that that complexity from dogmatic to serviceful and empowering. And so I felt like that was just kind of normal in any religious setting. What I didn't understand at the time was the actual intentional, manipulative brainwashing tactics that he was using from the beginning, not like a case where a great spiritual leader becomes this dog, this pow- power-hungry being. And that's what's so significant about what's happening in, in the Kundalini Yoga community now is back in 2020, when a book got written called Premka, um, she was one of his earliest first secretaries. Mm-hmm. And a book got written back in 2020, which really opened up our community, a flood of uh, sexual abuse testimonies, psychological, financial, physical abuse, pedophiles hidden in our community, abuse to the children in in the schools. It's just astounding. So what I found so interesting about this is my body was communicating this level of trauma to me a decade ago, but my mind wouldn't conceptualize that it was actually from my upbringing. So I kept kind of putting it like, I have no idea what this is. Maybe it's from historical, other people's trauma. I just didn't know. I just kept listening to the wisdom of my body and the repeating patterns that I felt were happening in my life, which kind of like led me down a rabbit hole in my own body. And last year is the first time that I got that confirmation um, because I was really trying to reconcile the love I had for Kundalini Yoga and how much I thought it was housed in real science, real physiological, biological, chemical understanding. And what I now know, and the reason I frame it in a high demand group, is the sophistication of cult leaders, or what's also called high demand group leaders. High demand group is an academic name for cults. And I find that that wording is a little better for us to receive the information because cults will unconsciously like kind of like take us offline Mm -hmm. as if those things are bad. And the reality is there's cults all all day long. Every one of us participates in them in some capacity, Mm -hmm. but then there's abusive cults. And then there's cults that are actually like teaching in interesting, sophisticated ways, lack of agency and other techniques to avoid critical thinking. And that is what our community really represents because as much as it's housed in the cloak of the yoga of awareness, it's actually very, very sophisticated, like a a great high demand group leader or cult leader will take fragments of truth from other sources Mm -hmm. and put them together in one thing as if we have this new identity. And so when I looked at high demand groups and then the impact of children born into high demand groups, it was like a checklist, Casey. It was like, oh, check, oh, check, oh, check. And it let me see myself for the first time. And when I started reading about complex trauma, 
I could see myself in that definition, but I had been trained in my nervous system to believe that deprivation, the sensation of deprivation in my body was enlightenment. Here in New York State, we've recently had a a case, um, a high profile cult case in the news. It was the Nexium. Yes. Uh, you, you heard of that? And there were actresses involved. And there was a couple of documentaries on TV. I think that we now, at least in my little corner of the world, we understand cults so much better now. You know, we understand that there was a systematic intent of abuse from the start. So so Yogi Bhajan came here. Do you think he came with that intent? Well, what we're seeing is, yes, like I'm not coming up with a hypothesis. There's been academics who've done research on the actual story of him. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're comparing the mythology that he's told in the last 50 years from 1969, the stories, the tales of who his teachers were. And the academic study by Philip DeSlip basically broke that narrative down that says he doesn't have the background he said he had. He came here via Canada. There's reports that he probably got a woman pregnant in Canada before he got here. Several women that got pregnant and had abortions from him. Other women that were born into our community and groomed into being concubines um, and sexual abuse. There was a report that came out where the amount of sadistic brutality against these women that are our sisters in our community, it goes beyond infidelity. I had dealt with he was sleeping with his secretaries. I had figured everybody knew that much. But this isn't infidelity. This isn't just not following through on being a spiritual man. This is predatory, sadistic, psychological breakdown for LGBTQ has not been safe in our community. Black people and indigenous people have not been safe in our community. Women have not been safe in our community. Children. And it's all cloaked under light washing. The community is very known for bypassing, gaslighting, and victim shaming. And because this all came out in 2020, I started a podcast to invite people to tell their stories because I was witnessing that our community had been trained so sophisticatedly to be silenced and to go for the spiritual high road, that the uncomfortability in our bodies to speak out on something that just didn't feel right, Right. much less actual abuse, abuse. And so anyways, we've had like 27 episodes of different people from all ages, from the 70s all the way to 2019, telling their stories. And it's been pretty profound and healing for the community. How'd he get so smart? Personally, I think cult leaders feed on the followers. So they're not necessarily so smart, but they're really good synthesizers of information. So somebody can come to them and the way they'll relate to that person is going to be a unique, sophisticated. It's more like reading needs, like the people, like um, mm-hmm. like a very charismatic energy. Any leader can that has charisma can move morph into cult leadership very easily because we get into our own head, right? We can think that our power and and the people feed us. And I think that was a part of it. I don't think he came with a sophisticated plan. I think he he fed on what people were willingly giving him. Meaning they were seeking to belong. And it's a primal human need to long to belong. Did you ever experience any firsthand abuse from him? 
No, no. I mean, I didn't have any direct connection personally with him. Of course, I was named by him. My parent, my dad was a director of the Phoenix community that I raised was raised in. So he was direct leadership. But my dad was always a little bit of a renegade and, and wasn't fully all into the idea of like submit and have a guru and all that kind of stuff. He, he never really went that full route. So I feel like on a, some level, my dad was protecting us. I remember him saying something like, if you don't know what you want, he'll tell you. Mm. This is about you knowing what you want, your direct connection to source. And so he would say stuff like that, where I think maybe other families submitted their children a little bit more, like whatever, you know, if, if they, they didn't have direct conversations between parents and children, they would just say, you have to ask Yogi Bhajan. So I think it had to do with the household we were raised in. Right. But what I'll say more specifically about the type of trauma that is happening and continues to happen in our community is it's not so much those that were abused by Yogi Bhajan, although that's very critical and important. It's that there was vicarious collective trauma because of the type of tactics he was instilling. So there was no critical thinking. There were a lot of adults that had vacated their bodies that were just living and operating in, in trauma trauma patterns and trauma bonds. And so as children, I think a lot of us experience deep levels of abandonment disguised as community connection. It's so psychosomatic. It's so mixed up. It's so convoluted to be from a spiritual community that talks about compassion and awareness and to realize as children growing up, we learn to block our heart and not feel our emotional bodies. You said just recently you got confirmation of the abuse confirmation of confirmation that my body always knew information that my mind wouldn't recognize as real in 2020 when all this broke wide open i could see it in plain sight because suddenly other people were talking about it these were things that were in my interior back in 2012 i had built a, a business for a decade grew it to almost a half a million dollars in, in monthly sales and, and just growing and, and training and leadership development. And I'd really morphed. I had changed so much of myself to be successful in that business. And when it collapsed, there were remnants or feelings for me that reminded me of my upbringing. And I didn't understand it fully. Of course, I knew that the business I was in was cult-like because it was a network marketing type model, which can have cult energy like to it, kind of the sales team system. But I didn't understand the depth of like a repeating pattern. So I had lost my finances. I had gotten kicked out of my own business. It felt like I was ostracized from my own family and people that I loved and trusted. There were remnants of familiarity. And the message I was getting was there's something repeating here and it's time for you to turn inward and listen and stop working so hard externally to achieve. And I took that to heart. And so the work I did in the last eight years from 2012 to 2020 was an interior level of exploration and learning about my nervous system and my trauma patterns that I wouldn't have even called trauma because I didn't consider myself come from a traumatic background. I thought I had come from a pretty blessed background yeah. compared to a lot of people. So 
it's one thing to be on a personal journey and kind of have interpretations and take symbolism and, and kind of be on our own process. But I wasn't bringing that out to the public and saying, hey, that's bad. Don't do that. Because who am I to interpret somebody else's journey? Right. But I knew I was coming up against real patterns of subjugation. Like I couldn't feel my emotions. I couldn't feel where my emotions were in my body. A lot of parts of my body felt numb a lot of the time. I had a lot of digestive issues that weren't related to food because I've always ate very clean. So I knew it was emotional. And so I slowly was chipping away at what are the emotions that are keeping me from feeling safe to express. Then I went a little further and dove into realms of sexuality and permission to be in pleasure and I realized whoa I am holding so much sexual shame and I didn't know what all this was I was just slowly kind of unraveling it and examining it so I felt like I was on my journey Casey but I wouldn't have put it into a collective journey like wow we have all been systematically abused in these ways and so this past 2020 when there was an opening of communication in my community and keep in mind i left the 3ho kundalini community years ago and worked very very hard to reconcile my love for it against the hypocrisy i know existed and so my healing journey was purely out of me wanting to hold where i come from in some sort of a light because I didn't want to throw it all away. I knew there had to have been something good from it. What I didn't know is, again, how much it was steeped in predatory roots. Right. It makes sense to me that you found a career with a lack of stability and a lack of integrity. And you didn't even know it because we do repeat what feels familiar. So that had to feel like home. You know, like here's so much uh, potential for you to reach your highest whatever. And it's all smoke and mirrors, really. So true. There were a lot of elements similar, right? Like you can be you can create your own income and you're free and and you're not in this corporate model. So it was like us against them. That's old and familiar. No stability. Work for something for decades. Invest all this time, energy and loyalty and only have nothing to show there. There were so many things that what I now know my soul was asking me to look at and to dismantle. And it's what's led me into this level of teaching because no matter where we come from, we all are steeped in our conditioning and we're gonna repeat patterns that are old, whether they're relationship patterns, money patterns, uh, career, historical patterns. And we only get to uproot them if we're willing to examine the parts of us that hold that code or that default setting, as I like to call it. And as you talk, I know people listening to this are starting to have the big shazams like, oh, my gosh, that's why I'm in this job. Or that's why I had this relationship. And in a way, we almost have to thank the job for giving you the opportunity to look back and see where the connection was. How did you amass sexual shame? Is it just living in the toxic community of sexual predatorydom? 
How did you get this, the toxic, the sexual shame? Well, you know, I was molested when I was young, so I knew that happened. And that was because my father was a, was a closet alcoholic. He was, he, was, he was the spiritual person that also was a child inside and kind of plays, played the wise man in community after community, but really just hadn't dealt with his own inner pain. Um, so when I was about 15 and I witnessed him drunk stupor and noticed he had blackouts, I realized, oh gosh, there's some historical molestation here, um, which I addressed while he was alive and a lot more when he was dead. And I've always had a, a real interesting relationship with him because he helped me so much. A lot of the reasons I think out of the box and uh, the orator and communicator I am is from my father. And yet he was also a predator. He was also an abuser. He was also a drunk. He was also someone who didn't work out his pain while he ha was still in his body. So there was that. And I always knew I had processed a lot of that. Literally, when he died and I cleared a lot of anger out of my body from him, I dropped like 50 pounds. I cleared so much of his energy out of my body and did a lot of work from 2006, 7, 8, a lot of years. And so I thought I was pretty sexually revolutionized, you know, I thought I had I was open public speaking to these things, doing a lot of work on myself. But when 2015 came about, so from 2012 to 2015, I had lost my other business and I was in this process of grieving and doing inner work to heal and morphing into the next version of what business was coming forth and started looking at the online space a little bit. And what was coming up for me was sexuality and spirituality. And so I, my first version of my brand was something like sassy, sexy, spiritual. And I remember the charge in my body thinking that the whole world would just freak out with putting spirituality and sexuality together, right? And I remember, this is 2013, and I put it out and I'm wearing, you know, my business sexy clothes. And for me, this is a big deal because when you come from deep religious coding, you don't understand how much deep embedded fear we were raised with. We were slut shamed a lot and prostitute shamed like, oh, if you wear high heels, you're a slut. If you wear lipstick, you're a slut. If you wear your hair down, you're a slut. If you wear clothes that are colored, you are slut. like everything. Please. Truth, Casey, that was a part of my reclamation was I, I started learning that the way for me to heal was to do the opposite of what I was told. I started doing energetic homeopathy, essentially. So whatever I was told not to do, I was like, hmm, what if that's the answer? And so I started exploring in that realm of like, wow, what is my feeling of sexuality? What, playing with these things. And this eventually, several years in, led me to desire based pleasure-based work that got me in my body I used to think I was in my body but I was thinking about my body right and so the embodiment process feeling my hips my pelvis I could start to feel the darkness and the layers of shame that lived in my pelvis and in my belly not just this persona that I thought I had in the world so it's so confusing to grow up in an environment where who you are is made to be wrong. The holding of shame is so 
layered and dense. And so this is what I meant by I didn't understand the amount of shame. And when this happened, I had to start looking at myself with a new set of glasses and say, there is something seriously running me. We're more like computers than we'd like to believe. We have default settings that were created by our manufacturing environment. And we can't change the default settings if we don't even know what the default settings are. So first of all, we have to recognize we have default settings. And then as a computer system, we hold memory. Doesn't matter if we don't remember it. On your computer, you think you've closed the program down, but it's running in the background of the computer the whole time. And we're the same way. We hold that imprint. We have default implicit biases, implicit ways of seeing the world that are not truth. They're just based on our unique imprinting and trauma that hasn't been metabolized in our body. We can change it because we're like a computer. We can rewire it and recode ourselves too. That's Guru Nishan. And in the end, didn't she just live up to the meaning of her name? The symbol of transformation from darkness to light. G-U-R-U-N-I-S-C-H-A-N, gurunishan.com. She'll work with you. She calls herself a soul provocateur, an alchemist, a breath trainer. And if you are feeling anxiety, she can help you untangle yourself. Visit gurunishan.com. Lovely lady. Lots to think about today. And our thought for the day is from Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, who said, Knowing others is intelligence. Knowing yourself is true wisdom. Mastering others is strength. Mastering yourself is true power. Shine on. You've been listening to Shine On, the health and happiness show for your entertainment only. Heard Sunday mornings on 100.7 WHUD and 920, 1260 and 1420 AM, all in New York's Hudson Valley. Subscribe to Shine On on iTunes and SoundCloud and catch a show anytime at Casey.co. That's K-A-C-E-Y dot C-O. Shine On. Shine On.